Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019, Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Grand Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew? A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona at the end of June 2013? Episode 4, Part 2, All the Dominoes Line Up to Tragedy. Hi, my name is Deborah Fingston. My son, Andrew Ashcraft, was lead sawyer on Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew. I'm Doug Harwood. I'm a Prescott firefighter, and I was on Granite Mountain for a few years and had some good friends on that crew. And with us also is Shelby, our sound engineer, who is also a roller derby expert, <laughs> known on the derby field as uh, Dozer Boss. Yay! <laughs> uh, the comments you guys have been sending really restore our energies. Uh, I hope we have answered your questions as well. Um, we love some, that some of you express your aggravation with the investigation and want to know the truth. If any of you have specific questions or want more info, please email us at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. Just a reminder that if you have any questions about June 28th, 29th, and the start of June 30th, please listen to episode one through three. We've tried to do our best to follow the serious accident investigation report, but it was so bad and so full of holes. Remember the Swiss cheese comment from the last episode. We have to use other information as well. Here it, um, is a sensitivity warning. We've given this every episode. This, um, there may be tears and some really raw language, so please be aware of that. We are dealing with Sunday, June 30th, and it was a super chaotic, messy day. Now, in episode three, part one, we covered the morning um, till approximately 15.30, like 3.30 p.m. In episode three, command or lack of command arrives on the fire. We do not want to move too quickly and miss anything important. This episode will deal with just a couple of hours on June 30th. During this time, 19 men lost their lives, and it is important to learn what really happened. New leadership is on the fire now. Uh, most of the people out in the field don't even know this. Some say they didn't know that this had happened until after the deaths of the crew. The transitions between the leadership uh, is not, isn't, uh, is questionable, and also the transitions between aviation has uh, come into question. Eric Marsh is the Division A supervisor. Jesse Steed is the Grand Mountain Hotshot captain, and he's going to be the leader of the crew now while Eric is the super, uh, Division Soup. Um, the times in the SAR are never correct. They're based on interviews, and they're all, the times have been scattered. We tried to get them as close as we could. Um, right now, the fire is all about structure protection. We talked about this last time. Granite Mountain was the only crew really doing any firefighting. Um, they were anchoring and flanking, creating that anchor point. Everyone else was working on structure protection. And as the fire went on, it just seemed more and more everybody's worried about the structures. They kind of left Granite Mountain to their own devices. And Granite Mountain was always accused. There are some out there that accuse them of putting structure first, and they shouldn't have. But that really wasn't the tactic yeah, for them. Not at all. And also, there was the, the bad drops we talked about from the, uh, 
the air, atta air attack putting out the fire that they were trying to connect the black edges to make less work for them. So their workload was added to. And Granite Mountain stops for lunch. And we talked also about where that picture, where that picture shows a lot of people see that and they think that's where they, they went down into that bowl and, and lost their lives, but that's not the case. Then finally, at about 1300, 1 p.m., um, there was a request from the Arizona State Foresters, District Forester, um, not IC, and they filled out the complex city analysis, which should have been filled out way back on Friday, but wasn't even filled out until Sunday around 1 o'clock, not by incident command, but by the district forester. Um, the field OSC, which stands for what, Doug? Operations section chief. Okay, so the field's operations section chief interview, um, he states that the planning operations section chief um, with the help of engines, was doing some backburns around homes. Remember that. There were several firefighters in a lot of different spots. Um, a lot of things going on. This was a complex fire. Structure fire, volunteer fire, sheriffs, police officers, um, and um, some other crews also. So we are just going to be dealing pretty much with Granite Mountain, um, but realize there are other firefighters doing other things. Um, about 15.30, 3.30 uh, p.m., the planning OSC and um, Eric Marsh the, um, met with, they discussed, and there was a two-mile flanking fire, and it started to look like a head fire, and it was moving to the southeast. Doug? Right. This is what we were talking about. Uh, I don't know if I made this exactly clear, but the, the flanking fire, the fire was basically growing to the north, and then that all that all that eastern flank turned into when the winds changed turned into the head of another fire. The head of the fire turned basically, so that entire edge that the air, aircraft wasn't able to put out because they were just making kind of spotty drops or they weren't connecting anything. Nothing was anchored in. That entire side just turned into one big head head fire. Or I guess it had a couple heads because the the. Uh, they did stop it in certain areas, but all that grew together and just started heading to the east. Okay. Um, and I just want to bring up one more thing. The um, planning OSC in his interview to the SAIR stated he never really talked to Eric Marsh, yet in other interviews, and then we have audio, he did. So not quite sure why that out not lie, really. Um, transpired. So this is about where we stopped. We did a real quick down and dirty catching you up. Um, please li listen to episode three so you know a lot more of our information. But from this point forward, we are going to move into episode four, all the dominoes line up to tragedy. We want to start with the importance of Sesame Street. That's that street in Glenhalla and part of um, Yarnell that's um, we believe very key. The um, SPGS1, which is Structure Protection Group, is in control of this street. They're there with Blue Ridge and a dozer. Um, all day long, they were working on a plan for a backburn from this location. We discussed what a backburn was. This is the spot. They were prepping it all day. It was for complete structure protection to protect Jarnell. They had set pre-trigger, um, I'm sorry, predetermined trigger points, and each trigger point 
um, things needed to happen. So Doug, what exactly is a trigger point? What does that mean? That's just someone who's, they're, when they're making the plan, they're deciding things, things that are going to make them change their tactics or pull people back or something has to happen at that point. They have to do change, change in plans, change in tactics, or change in where their people are. Is there a rule of thumb? Is there usually three trigger points, two trigger points, is, or is that just different? I think it's probably case by case. Okay. But, in, but it, you know, a trigger point could be the RH gets to a certain point. Okay. A trigger point could be the winds get to a certain point. Okay. A trigger point could be the fire grows a certain, gets to a certain uh, draw or ridge or something like that. Okay, so um, when the fire hits that trigger point, they have planned, uh, an action happens from that. Right, correct. So correct. here um, on Sesame Street, they had set trigger points for a backburn. That was a plan they had all day. Yeah. And I just want to remind too, the reason they're doing this backburn, well, one of the reasons is they are already written off Yarnell as none of these homes are savable. So their only option is to burn before it gets to the A backburn. Before, before it gets to these homes. So here at Sesame Street, this group has been preparing that if need be, they're going to put fire on the ground to burn back towards the fire. So you have all this... Um, burn that black what do they call it this um the, where you don't go into the black right right so they have all this place so hoping that the fire will stop right burn the fuels between yeah okay so um at 340 which is 1540 340 p.m the fire reaches the first geographic trigger point for this structure specialist and so evacuations of Yarnell are requested. That was the one thing that had to happen at this trigger point. At the same time, Eric Marsh talks to the planning OSC, letting him know that the retardant line and dozer lines have been compromised. Granite Mountain was in the burned area at this time. They were safe. Right. That's right? basically they're in their safety zone. Yeah. Okay. So they're in the safety zone. So Eric Marsh lets planning OSC know where they're at and what's going on. Five minutes after the trigger point for Sesame Street is hit, which is 1545, about 345 p.m., the structure protection group um, meets up with the field operation specialist. They call the um, air attack, and they um, hear that the winds are getting erratic, and they request that air attack check on Granite Mountain and um, when they had a moment. So, you know, communication is happening, things are happening rapidly. Yeah, and then at 1550, there's lots of communications here. For some reason, the field operations, uh, even after he told the, the air attack to contact Granite Mountain, he called Marsh by radio. That's what it said in the interviews, it said he called by radio, but right. later it was said that um, it was actually through cell phone that they made this communication. And we even checked the records um, of Eric Marsh's phone records, cell phone records, and there is one phone call, and it is to this field um, operation guy. And it's, he's, he said at that time he was just asking to make sure he was aware of the weather update. And Marsh confirmed and noted that the winds were getting squirrely on the ridge. So again, Granite Mountain's up there in that area where they can see the fire well, they can see the storms well and he's feeling those winds and aware of them and, and passing that information along. He also told the field operations that they were, Granite Mountain was moving off the top. 
um, Granite Mountain can see the fire and they have a better vantage point at that point than anybody else. Like I said, they're either in the black or they're along that ridge um, and they have a great view of the fire better than anybody would air attack. And you and I, Doug, have been on this ridge multiple times. You can see for miles yeah. up there. They, they could see Arnell. They could see the fire. They could see way into People's Valley. They could see way over to Wickenburg. Um, they had views of all from this point. Yeah, maybe not People's Valley just because of the smoke. Right. But, oh, uh, yes. Everything you're else. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so uh, at this point, there's radio traffic of Marsh saying that he's at the ranch. Um, and that's important, Doug, because later on in interviews, it's claimed by a lot of the field operation, planning operation, the IC commander, that they had no idea where he was. Yet he states, I'm at the, you know, I'm at the ranch. And so that, I think that's important. Um, yeah, it's important, and also it, it also it's just another thing that shows that uh, that first investigation. They said that they were together the entire time. They s said nothing about Eric being separated from them, and obviously in these radio communications, he's not with Granite Mountain. Right, and we know that he was the division. Right, um, and also uh, at that two-track road, um, it was discovered marking tape. And what would people use marking tape for? Uh, you could flag hazards with that. You could flag routes where you want people to go, where you want line dug, like that. It right. could be it could be safety a safety zone area or escape route area. Usually those would be marked as if this is escape route. I'd say escape route flagging. But if you're just a, a specific crew, you could mark it with anything and just let everybody on your crew know. Okay, and that that tape um, was specifically right on that two track road. It was uh, kind of right at that ridge where a lot of people believe, I believe, they did not go down the saddle, which is for another conversation, but I believe that at Ridge, and um, there are pictures of that tape, um, it was, you know, very important, but also right down, about halfway down um, that descent, my husband Jerry and I, we were out there with the group, hiking around, looking, um, and Jerry came upon a glove, and it was a crew glove, and he found it. It was right on that ridge near Boulders, and he looked at it, and he thought, this is important. After that day, we notified the authorities that we found this glove. Um, we went back to retrieve it. It was all of a sudden missing, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it was missing, and then it was never mentioned again. But Anthony Rose was missing a glove. If you read um, in his medical examiner's report, he was missing a glove. So here's tape at the top, a glove discovered, and it's pretty normal for somebody that's building an escape route to take a Sawyer with them, right? Yeah, in that, in that country, in that brush, you'd need a Sawyer. Okay. Yeah. But you wouldn't take your leads. Probably not, unless they were just going to do it on their own. Okay. Yeah. So... It's possible that Eric took Anthony Rose um, because I actually spoke to Chief Willis at the time and I asked him who would Eric might have taken. And he actually brought up Anthony to me before I even told him that we found the gloves. So it, it just seemed to make sense. Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. I think it speaks, at least from my point of view too, it just shows that what kind of investigation was done. Ugh. If you guys are out there finding gloves and tape, 
what were the investigators looking for when they were they weren't looking they weren't. in those areas or, or anywhere that was important really they to, did as to what they, well yeah I agree they they didn't and then we have stobs could you explain what a stob is uh, well it'd just be the the after the, something was cut after the brush was cut what's left just above the ground because obviously you don't rip anything out by the roots you're using the chainsaw right so it's just that little bit that's cut okay um and the, I think the ones that I I've seen them but I think they did the people who discovered them were saying you know you could tell that they were burned like they'd been cut and then the burn had come right so right. you could tell that they were older and they were further away from where the crew was where you could hear their chainsaws later talk about that so right. it was somewhere along that path between the ranch and where the crew ended up right and and we will be discussing that later um but stops were found all the way from down um the descent all the way to the ranch some stops were found so we've got the marking tape we've got the glove we've got stops we've got radio traffic and none of this was mentioned in the serious accident investigation report none of it so this is where it gets really crazy, I think. So at this time, the air attack calls and tells Marsh that the fire is headed towards Yarnell and it could reach the Yarnell in one to two hours. So this air attack is communicating with Marsh right now. Um, he's giving him one to two hours saying that it could be there, but the crew's not necessarily depending on that. You know, They can see how, how the fire's moving. They know the fire weather. They know monsoon weather. They know what could happen, but that's what the air attacks gave them a heads up for. Um, the crew might think that they have two hours, but they're, they're going to use their own judgment on that too. Right, and these, most of this crew grew up in this area. They truly know the fuels, they know the ground, they know the weather. Yeah, I mean the guys I knew on that crew, they know that weather inside and out. Right. Yeah. And the crew carriers are in the path of the fire, so Marsh is getting those moved. Um, uh, the air attack told him that the crew carriers are in the path. So he's informing him that he's working on that and has a plan for that. And at the same time, Steed calls the lookout, their lookout, and relays the, the weather update um, just to make sure that he heard it too. And as soon as that call was over, the lookout saw the crew, the crew's location and that the fire started. He also saw that the fire started building and the winds were beginning to shift. The fire had hit his first trigger point, so he had a trigger point too where he was going to leave his spot. And he called Steed and told him that he was leaving the lookout. So definitely this fire is heading towards Sesame Street in Yarnell. Yep. Blue Ridge called Granite Mountain on the radio. And Granite Mountain told them that they have good visibility. We're in the burn area and we're in the process of assessing their situation. And the lookout said he believed that Marsh was scouting. What exactly is scouting, Doug? It means like he's looking ahead uh, where they're gonna, their next plan of attack is going to be. Okay. Um, Steed calls the lookout and says, I've got eyes on the fire, and it's making a good push. And so um, we're aware that the lookout is now starting to walk out, now, Blue Ridge, they had the plan, um, Granite Mountain and Blue Ridge had the plan that Blue Ridge would go by and pick up the lookout. So they are driving by, they pick him up, um, and then the Blue Ridge soup calls Steed on the radio and says, hey, just so you're aware, we have your lookout. Um, Granite Mountain, Steed tells Blue Ridge, 
Again, they have good visibility. They're in the burn area and they're assessing their situation. So, you know, they knew what was going on. They're not just winging it. At this time, the field uh, operations interview, uh, he states that the, the planning operations asked Granite Mountain to come down and prep more stuff in Yarnell. And there's not another question asked about this. Yeah. Again, and this is the same planning that said he never communicated with Granite Mountain, but in this interview, he says he did, or someone says that he did, called them to prep more stuff in Yarnell. But yet they don't ask, well, yeah. what was the plan? What, what, nothing. Right, and Yarnell was already written off, so what more could they be prepping? What were they already prepping? It's, it just seems like an obvious place where you'd be asking lots of questions. And this is also the interview where these two guys were sitting together. I believe if this was the SAIR interview, then yeah, yeah they were interviewed they're sitting together. together. Right. Yeah. So at 1555-355, the structure group loses his air-to-ground radio frequency and communication is interrupted based on the, his interview. And this is not mentioned in the SAI report at all, but he even completely lost radio communication with the air attack. In the SAR report, they state that he makes communications with air attack at this time. Okay, so one interview says, I lost air... Um, to ground frequency, then the other interview says, no, he had it. And again, this is that key spot of Sesame Street. Yep. Um, the Granite Mountain lookout, here's Marsh and Steed talking about at this time about options of whether to move or stay in the black. And I want to address at this point, some say that they believe that Steed and Marsh were arguing. Um, some say they weren't. You know, and, and Doug, you and I have talked about this, and I have my theory, and so I'll share it with you. Um, they have had one crap of a day. This, sure. you know, forgive me, this is a shit storm of a day. And all their work has been put out, all they've done, all day in the morning. The, they don't, I see command as like in their own worlds, Nobody else is directly working the fire except they are. It's 120 freaking degrees. Um, they're carrying, I mean, they're, they're trying their best to be, they're the only ones on this fire fighting the fire. And then you've got male um, attitudes going, right? <laughs> and I'll even take that away. I mean, I've used the example that, listen, if I've had a crap of a day at work and I come home and my husband Jerry's had a crap of a day at work, and I walk into the kitchen and I'll say, what do you want for dinner? And he'll look at me and say, I don't care, whatever you want. And I'll say, what's with the attitude? And then we start snipping at each other. It's not that we're angry at each other. It's just we've had a crap of a busy day. So, I mean, I'm sorry. I can't imagine Steed saying, hi, Eric. Hey, what are we doing? No, I think both these guys have great, have good opinions and they're not going to keep them quiet for the other one, you know, they're going to give you, they're going to bounce ideas off each other. If they're in a bad mood, it's going to sound like they're in a bad mood, but, uh, I don't think they're going to, I think they're both going to, these are both the kind of guys that would let everybody know how they were feeling. And this crew, I mean, these weren't, um, followers, were they? I mean, were these like, uh, were these men on this crew that just followed anybody to anything? Or would they question? Would they talk? Because that's also another thing. You know, um, they just followed them to their deaths. I hate that comment yeah. with a passion. You knew the crew, Doug. 
Were these men that type? It definitely wasn't trained that way. I mean, you you were new people. Newer people were often brought into the um, early morning briefings at different fires. Everybody was trained in the level above them, at least, if not more than that. Everybody had good fire sense, and they uh, they all spoke up. From what I knew of them, the, the guys that I knew on that crew. Right. So, uh, so for, you know, I keep saying this is so frustrating, so frustrating, because I don't want to use the other F words. So <laughs> I'm trying my best to really be good here. Now, um, this structure specialist, again on Sesame Street, contacts Blue Ridge at this time to ask if they still have the option to burn out from the dozer line on Sesame Street that they've been preparing for all day. And Blue Ridge says that they don't have the option to do that anymore. Yeah, according to Blue Ridge, it's not, it's not an option anymore. The fire is moving too fast or too close. It doesn't say why they say it's not an option anymore, but that's, that's their opinion. Um, and Marsh says there, he contacts him and says, he, the, I don't know who contacted who, but Blue Ridge and Marsh are talking, and they say they're making their way to, out there to their escape route. Marsh says we're going towards the ranch, and Blue Ridge is confused, but they try and clarify. They say Blue Ridge at this point thinks that they're coming down the black to the um, where the grader was along that along that road, but that's the same road they went up, and it's also the same two track that they go along to get to the other ranch. So he asks him, "Are you talking about the road we saw you on?" And he says, "Yes." So in Marsh's mind, they know where he is. In right. their mind, they know where he is, but it's not the same place. Right, but it's, in reality, it's the same road. The Just same one's road. on the left side, one's on the right, right side. And then, you know, it makes sense. Eric says, I'm going to make our way to the escape route. Remember that tape we talked about? I believe that's the escape route he prepared. We're making our way there. We're going towards the ranch. And also, the uh, original air attack knew exactly where Eric Marsh was. So, um, you know, Eric and Granite Mountain thinks yeah. that people know where they are. Yeah, and it's the, it's the ranch that they've been talking about as a safety zone from the very beginning of the, of the day. That's right. And I still believe, and this is my belief, is that Incident Command did know where they were, that that's a huge um, ignorance that the SAIR um, states, and we'll be bringing that up later. Yeah, with all this radio traffic and communications, people had to know where they were, and, and it's just not a correct thing to say. Yeah, it's, it's um, an out-and-out -out lie. Yeah. So now we have to go to ADOSH because the SAR becomes so sparse. Um, and it's, the SAR is saying the outflow boundary is moving and, uh, and the winds are coming in, and we're going to move the fire 16 miles an hour. That's saying with that 50-mile-an-hour wind and all that stuff. Right. And that's about 4.18 p.m., about 16.18. So we're in a real critical window here. Trigger points are met for um, Sesame Street. Um, Granite Mountain says we're going our escape route. We've got a lot happening here. Yep. You are listening to Penny University, a podcast with value. We hope you find this series captivating. If you would like to share your two cents, please contact either Deborah or Doug at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. Thank you, and now back to the podcast. So we talked about the ADOSH report. That's the Arizona Department of Occupational Health and Health, Safety and Health. 
Um, they report thunder is being heard at uh, 1620, so 420 from fire personnel on the fire. So what produces thunder? Yep, lightning. Lightning. Yeah. And what? how many times have you said lightning would drive you off a ridge? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a little more frightened of it than most people, but yes. <laughs> it, it is terrifying to be caught in a, in a lightning storm, especially up high on a ridge like that. Okay, so they're on a ridge in lightning. Yeah. And then according to, this is the same, that SAR saying the 50 mile an hour winds. Again, radio communications would be impossible in that kind of wind. And they were still communicating on the radio just fine. Aircraft wouldn't be able to fly in that kind of wind. Aircraft still flying over the fire just fine. Um, and if something's, if wind is blowing that hard and fire is being moved that fast, someone would be recording it. Somebody would have their yeah, phone out. Yeah, we would see the, yeah. this, this going on, and we have none of that. Okay, so you just, I think that's really important. You just blew a few things out of the water there. If that type of fire was, I mean, if that type of wind was happening, no radio communication. We have no documentation of it, no videos, nothing. And flame and planes are flying, yep. and we've got lightning. Yep. So the ADOSH and the SAR say the fire reaches the second geographic trigger point for the structure group, and Blue Ridge has already, they're, well, they're leaving the area. And according to Blue Ridge's interviews, they're taking other crews with them as they're leaving. Okay, so now we've hit two trigger points, and the structure protection guy has trigger points set up for him to do a backburn. And we've got two trigger points hit. Yeah, and I don't know specifically, because he never says in the interviews, they never asked him what was going to happen when these trigger points got hit. That's he, just said, he tells what, what happened, but was that their plan? What were the trigger points set up for? There's none of that detailed information in, in the interviews. Well, that's because I believe the interviews didn't want us to know that. So um, the structure protection guy on Sesame Street directs everyone at a youth camp. And the youth camp was over, um, we believe, towards the shrine to leave. His trigger point was hit. Remember, evacuate Yarnell. Second trigger point, um, youth camp, uh, evacuate. Um, and then it hits his third trigger point, he states. Um, and remember, they have been prepping all day for a backburn. Now, all of his trigger points have been hit. And he is the last one to leave this area. Um, it states in his interview, it's in the newspaper, he has done interviews about this. He even won Firefighter of the Year because he bravely left Sesame Street as the last person and helped some residents out at that time. So and then at, at this time also, just kind of thinking, we're not really sure exactly the time frame of when Granite Mountain left the black. But we're thinking it was about 4, four o'clock, probably, 1600. Um, at one point, we, I walked with, uh, um, I, I walked that distance just to see what kind of time, time that would be. And I think it was like, I can't remember, 13 to 16 minutes, somewhere in there. Yeah, we, you and I and um, uh, John McLean and Holly Neal, uh, another great um, researcher, um, there were a few others. Jerry was on that walk with us. I mean, we've done this hike several times, but on that one, you were specifically timed. Um, Granite Mountain was a fast crew, so you were timed how quickly you moved. Yeah, and I wasn't trying to go fast. I was trying to go at what seemed like an average crew speed. If they were in a hurry, they would have gone much faster than I did. Right. If there was somebody injured or there was some reason to go slower, they could have gone a little slower probably too. So from the lunch spot over to the two ridge, 
Um, about what did you say? 15, 15 to 20, 20, 20 minutes? minutes would be a easy time for them to make it in. Okay. Yeah. So, and then we're, once they're on that, in that spot, so they're 15 or 20 minutes from their black where they were, they were good and safe. They're on a ridge, well, close to the ridge, following this two track. This point, about 420, somewhere in there, we're not sure exactly times, is where they're dropping down into that bowl where they eventually get burned up. And it's just, this is a point where you really got to, if you stand there as a firefighter and think of reasons to leave that ridge, as if, like, if, when I'm out hiking with my kids and I come upon a ridge like that, even if there's no fire around, I just get a gut, like, a bad feeling in my stomach. Just from all the times you've, as a firefighter, you've seen fire just race up things like that. So to imagine these guys going down that, how far would the fire have to be for them to make that decision? Um, what would be, ha what, something would have to be driving them off of that ridge. Maybe lightning, maybe an injury. And, because and if they're on the ridge, they have other options. They can go on the other side of the ridge. Right. They can light a backburn on the other side if there's a problem. They can follow the ridge all the way along. Usually there's less fuels and it's easier walking when you're up on the ridge. Um, they still had the two-track that they could go around. Um, but for some reason, somewhere in there along that two-track, they broke off of that and went down into this bowl. So, you know, we do know that lightning was heard. Thunder and lightning existed at that time. Um, according to um, conversation, um, Wade Parker had been sick. Something had happened. He wasn't doing well um, earlier in the day. Um, we also have another one of Granite Mountain. Um, I believe it was Robert Caldwell who had a pretty rough head injury, according to his medical reports. We don't know when that happened, but we do know Wade wasn't feeling well. Um, and we know that lightning existed. And these guys are expert. Like we said before, these guys know monsoon weather yeah they know that the fires you know as that as that cloud passes as that storm passes it's going to make 90 degree shifts as it goes by yeah so they know exactly what could be coming up so the reasons for them to come off of that you know we don't know what it was or, or the reasons yeah. but the fire had to be a distance away further than well at this point they thought they had an hour to two hours based on interviews right. i mean that's you know fact Eric Marsh has eyes on the fire. We know that. Up until this point, the crew has eyes on the fire. So eyes on the fire. Um, they have about an hour, two hours to go. They're a fast-moving crew. Escape route was prepped and ready. Um, we're, we've got thunder and lightning. We've got Wade Parker not doing well. I don't know if any other crew members weren't doing well. And we're heading to the supposed bomb-proof safety zone. Yeah. And as soon as they make this drop off of here too, the crew, the hiking, the, if the, the crew, the part of the crew that's hiking there will lose complete vision of the fire. Right. They're, all they're going to be able to see pretty much is down the bowl, well, to the east into that, into that ranch that they were going to use as right. a safety zone. But we know Eric Marsh is their eyes. Yeah, he's not with them, so hopefully he's the uh, lookout for them. Yeah. Right. And we have um, some discussion. It's marked on the trail. If you go to the trail now... Um, that they descended at kind of a saddle area. Uh, that day, everybody claims that it was the saddle that they came down. I mean, I've talked to several people, and they said, you know, you can tell where 19 men come down. I still disagree. I don't believe they came down at the saddle. I believe they came off the ridge, but um, 
I believe they came down that little bit of a ridge where the glove was found, where the marking tape was found, where stobs have been found. Um, but either or, it doesn't matter in essence, other than it would be nice to know the truth, the 100% truth. If they came down the saddle, if they came down that ridge, Eric Marsh um, was already at the ranch, kind of on a little ridge at the ranch, and he has eyes on the fire. So they may not see it, but they do have eyes there. Um, he even made you know that reference, I'm at the ranch. So the crew um, left the two-track road and that's the only time that through the whole day that they can't see the fire as a crew is as at this moment is at this time. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And then there's radio traffic that came up, um, was discovered later. And it's someone telling the telling uh, Eric that the crew needs to move faster. Um, and this was during the time frame that the SAR said at 30 minute time. There's lots of communications, but this is another one of those. Communications during that 30-minute time where Granite Mountain supposedly was not talking with anybody. So I want to make this really clear for anybody that's hearing this. The Serious Accident Investigation Report, the, the report that people follow, claim that there was a half-hour of radio silence. That's been blown out of the water. Oh, multiple times. You can Google you know, these communications. But then there is this one communication where someone is telling Eric Marsh to move faster. Or that his crew needs to move his faster. His crew needs to move faster. So someone, number one, knows where they're at. Number two, that tells them to move faster. And nobody claims, well, they don't know who that is. <laughs> um, personally, that's really irritating to me. And we'll be discussing this in another episode, but... Um, we have our theories of who it is. I would just love everybody and their mother to play it and see if they recognize the voice. Um, but again, the Serious Accident Investigation Report doesn't even acknowledge that audio, doesn't even acknowledge that that happened. To me, that's a cover-up. That is a full-bledged, you don't even have to be a conspiracy theorist to say that that's not a cover-up. It's a blatant smack in the face to me. I, I, it's just, I'm be, it, it's beyond. And I don't understand why other than to cover your butt. That's it. That's the only reason I can figure out. Yeah. So around 1639, 439, Marsh is communicating with Air, uh, Air Attack, confirming a drop path. He tells them that that's a good drop. That's, that's where they're going to want it. It's not where they actually dropped. It's just where the Air Attack was flying over. So some, obviously Marsh is still able to see some of the fire. He's able to see where this drop is going to be effective. Um, but the, here's a question we don't know. Is, the air attack at this time had already changed to that other terror attack that got a bad briefing. Um, the 10-minute briefing, right. barely 10 minutes. Yeah, if it was that. Yeah. So did they know who they were talking to when, when Eric was asking that? And also, did Eric realize he's talking to a different air attack than the one he'd been talking to all day? Is it normal for air attack to notify people on the ground that there's been a change or is normally is the change, uh, you know, that communication between the change so good that they don't have to? I mean, you know, I, I don't remember specifically noticing it ever. Okay. But um, 
obviously in this scenario, if they, if they didn't know where they were or who they were, I'm sure he doesn't right. have any idea the change happened either. So Eric Marsh, the air attack that he had been working with is gone. And we don't have any um, interview, any proof or anything that he knows that that's, this is a new group up there. Right. Okay. Yeah. And also, one of those air attacks, according to the, the SAR, saw two firefighters doing a burnout. Somewhere during this time. But yet, they don't question no, it. No other questions about that. <laughs> yeah. And so Marsh probably thought he was talking to the air-to-ground that he knew that he had been talking to all day, and knew who he was, knew who he was talking about. And knew where they, knew where they supposedly were, were yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. So, and at this time, the radios just completely blow up with structure protection. So everything is clogged. All the radio traffic's clogged about, because the fire's actually coming into town, the town now. Okay, so let's, again line up these dominoes. We've got the crew that left the two-track road. They don't have their eyes on the fire anymore, but Eric Marsh does. He says he does. Um, he's at the ranch. An escape route has been made. Um, they're coming down. Uh, they think they have one to two hours. Um, weather is coming, but weather, nobody knows weather is coming. Um, we have the fire has already hit the trigger points for Yarnell. We've got people evacuating. We have um, some of the leadership claims that they didn't even talk to Eric Marsh or the crew. Um, so basically, the crew's left out there to dry. Um, I believe that at this time, at 1640, at 420, fire was put on the ground at Sesame Street. I fully believe that um, everybody else was evacuating. Uh, I believe that it was... Um, and if, if there was fire put on the ground at that point on Sesame Street, at, at that time, that would explain this huge jump in fire. That's because right. it would put, if, if they were at the, if that's the time when they left that ridge, and the fire was in that area, they, there's no way they would have left the ridge well, there. Well, you and I have stood on Sesame Street, and we have looked. You can stand on Sesame Street facing where the fire was coming and look to your left, and you are looking up a straight shoot to the crew's... Yeah. Uh, it's just a funnel. It, it's just it's a the funnel. Start, it's, it's the beginning of a funnel that goes right to them. And it's insane. It is absolutely insane. And um, I remember you and I looking left and then looking at each other, and it's like, oh, my God. And so this structure protection group one, prepping all day to start a backburn, trigger points are hit. The Dozer and Blue Ridge, who were on Sesame Street prepping, in their interviews, claim they never got the weather report. We have air attack, new air attack, has no idea where Granite Mountain is. Eric Marsh is on the, um, can see, not only can he see Sesame Street from his location, he sees the fire, he sees the crew coming down, and all of a sudden, this weather front hits, fire is put on the ground, and radios are blowing up it's going nuts and also exactly at 420 in blue ridge's interview 
the redacted interview that we couldn't see way back when, but the new one we have that's not redacted, they said that they heard yelling on TAC-1, TAC-5, air to ground. Um, they, some, that Granite Mountain yeah, was, was Granite trying Mountain. to get a hold of someone desperately. Granite Mountain 7 trying every channel that they could try. Yeah, they're, so Granite Mountain is calling on TAC-1. Granite Mountain is calling on TAC-5. Granite Mountain is calling air to ground. And, and this is happening, and nobody, is, no, nobody knows, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Again, Granite Mountain was left out to fight the fire all by themselves all freaking day. And now we've got this going on. Yep. And now there's a communication between Granite Mountain and the uh, um, air, air attack. And the um, operations section chief, they confirmed that they need air support. And this kind of goes back when when Eric told them that that was a good line to drop on when he told Air Attack, that's where we want it. Air Attack, that Air Attack assumed he was talking to Division A. Then he's told that Granite Mountain needs help and they need air support. So he doesn't make the drop because he doesn't realize Division A and Granite Mountain is the same is the same people, same well, crew. Right, because there was no uh, turnover. You know, you can't do that in 10 minutes. And I guess maybe he didn't get one of those little post-it papers that yeah. they were handing out at IC Command earlier in the day. Right, and Eric right. would have no idea that he yeah. had to make that clear because he didn't, probably he didn't, didn't know. know that that changed. So it could, they confirmed that they need air support, uh, and the air support then contacts Marsh to request their location. So this is, you know, minutes wasted during that time where, where they had already asked for a drop. And we've got fire on the ground going. Yeah. And by that time, Marsha tells them that their escape route's been cut off. And you can hear him running. Um, sounds like he's running probably to the crew. You know, we don't know, we don't know what, what's going on there. But their escape route's been cut off. And um, air attacks, this air attack is confused because they don't know where they are. They're, get, they're, they're asking them, are you on the south side of the fire? And they don't want to do the drop because they want to hold it to maybe help. And they fly. It's just one of those other tragic points. Um, they were right over them. They could, they could have done a drop. I don't know if it would have saved them or not. I don't know. But they flew right over them with fuel. Um, and, you know... In that, in that audio, you can hear Eric running. Um, I've heard the audio. You can Google it. Um, and I think that's pretty amazing. He is on that one spot. He sees the backburn started. He sees, he feels the weather. Um, the crew is desperately on all tacks trying to get help. They're, you can hear chainsaws there busting their hind in, trying to build a safety zone for themselves. Um, and, you know, it says in all the reports, amazingly calm for what they were going through at that point. Um, he's trying to give as much information as he can. Tells them they're burning out in the brush, preparing for us uh, to deploy in their shelters, and they'll let them know when, when they're out. Air attacks still confused. Are they asking if they're on the south side of the fire? Marsh tells them, affirm, we're on the south side of the fire. Um, around 4.30, the serious accident investigation report um, says there's a lot of spot fires happening. Um, I believe, again, that spot fires probably were happening, but I believe they said that to cover themselves up for the backburn. Um, 
Supposedly, this is the time when 50 mile an hour winds hit, um, but no one on the fire talks about 50 mile an hour winds in their interviews. Not one. And the ones taking the weather are not, they say it was never 50 miles an hour. Right. 20, 20 to maybe 30 max. Right. So, you know, in essence, I believe this is a complete cover up. It was a mess. I do not believe anybody purposely meant to kill Granite Mountain, but I do believe 110% that they are covering up the fact of terrible communication, N no complexity analysis being done correctly, um, absolutely uh, terrible communication on the fire within each other that day, no plans, no direction. Um, that they let Granite Mountain, um, you know, I, I'm sorry, but absolutely no one stood up and said, I'm going to stand up for the crew. Um, they let this serious accident investigation report get published. And there are those out there that know. And I, and I believe we know the absolute truth. And um, we'll be discussing that a little bit more in our next episode. Some of the things we discovered, who we talked to. Um, but this right here, um, I believe Granite Mountain was killed by the backburn. No weather reports. Um, and no one has stood up for the crew. Agreed. Um, so, uh, and I think it's appalling that Granite Mountain is desperately calling for help. Uh, everybody, the news reports, everything has heard them calling, you know, breaking in Arizona 16. And for those of you that don't know, Arizona 16 is, um, is an air attack. They're, they're trying to get a hold of air attack. That's their channel type thing, right? right. Um, so they, they've tried all tacks, all radios, and they're saying, please, you know, Air 16, Granite Mountain Hotshots, we're in front of the Flaming Front. Um, they say it, how, you know, air attack, how do you read? Please listen to us. There's no panic button on the radios. They're nothing. They are trying to save themselves and no one's listening. Um, and it was so confusing at the time and people are trying to str struggle to find them. The ones that are trying to listen to them are trying to struggle to find them. You know what, honestly, uh, you and I have talked about this. The only people listening to all of the attacks was Blue Ridge. And in their interview, they said they could hear them calling for help like 15 minutes. Yeah. 15 minutes, that would have been time for them to do that drop. They could have done that retardant drop. They could have. Yeah, and we don't know how, how skewed those times are. No, we don't. But It's true. Yeah. But Granite Mountain was hung out to dry. And no one is stepping up um, to take the responsibility, and that's wrong. Um, you know, I think I need to clear up. I believe I stated that it was Robert Caldwell who had a head injury. It was not Robert. 
I believe it was uh, Clayton Witted. So I want to make sure um, that that change, that you hear that um, correction. Um, we know that one of the crew members had a head injury, and um, we're not sure when that occurred. Another thing, Deborah, just before we end this episode, I just want to make it clear on um, just something I believe. I believe the fire was put on the ground in that Sesame Street area. Um, the things that we know, uh, working with that crew and guys on that crew, the crew would not have left that saddle ridge if the fire had been near the mouth of that bowl. According to that time, it was a mile away, almost a mile away from the mouth of that bowl. The start of that, that bowl and draw where Sesame Street and structures meet would be right in the area where they're going to burn, right along the backside of those structures. Personal on that fire had been using that tactic of lighting off near homes numerous times during the fire. I mean, burnout is an, a tactic that they're using specifically on this fire. That day. That day. I'm not, yeah, and I don't want to say there's a specific person or a specific group that, that did it. You, there's many, many options in there. Lots of people knew about that Sesame Street burn. Lots of people knew the plan. Lots of people knew what the options were there. The other thing is uh, planning an offset to ask Grand Mountain to come down and help them prep more in Yarnell. And could this have been, I don't know, this might have been another burn near that same area on the, along, the, along the backside of Yarnell. So there's, it could be a different burn, but something in that area put the fire in that mouth of that bowl. And I 100% agree. That's the fire that blew up that bowl. Yeah. So I mean, somehow the fire moved nearly a mile in 10 minutes. And it didn't happen with the winds, the winds that never came, that nobody ever saw. Uh, you know, a push like that, just pushing uh, fire, if it had moved a mile in 10 minutes, somebody would have caught that on video. People would have been taking pictures. Everybody would have been amazed at fire moving that fast. And again, like you stated, you, they wouldn't be able to talk in the radios. There wouldn't be um, aviation. Yeah, if wind That's, was blowing it's it like impossible. that, it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. Yeah. And so when the crew left that ridge, when they left it, when they started going down into that bowl, the Sesame Street prepped area, if, if that was lit right then, or some time on their way down that, that causes the fire to move that mile and get to the mouth of that bowl. It puts it right in the, in the mouth of, and of that draw that Granite Mountains ends up dropping into. Um, I, I fully agree, Doug. Um, you know, this has been a super hard, very rough episode. Uh, I was dreading it. I've, I've been dreading this episode. It's hard. Um, but we want to make things clear. We want to make sure we cover everything. We don't want to rush. We don't want to let our emotions take over. Um, the crew died here under their shelters in about a 25 by 30 um, circumference circle, uh, very professional. And um, I, I want that clear, but it's so hard for us. Um, but this is also kind of a spot where... Uh, Doug and I are coming into this tragedy, and so um, in our next coming episodes, we're going to be destroying the SAIR, the Serious Accident Investigation Report. I'm hoping that from this point forward, people will throw it in the trash can. They'll burn it. Um, evidence, our evidence, will show that there's a completely d different scenario from what the Serious Accident Investigation Report shows. So we want to make sure that we explain it well to you. So, um, you okay, Doug? I'm good. Thank okay. you. Okay.
Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to Penn University's presentation of our investigation, Our Truth. Please join us again for the next episode in this gripping series. We hope you find us a podcast with value. Until next episode, be strong, wise, and safe. Thank you.